scripture reading now is from Psalm 5, and the sermon I've titled, A War Psalm of the Prince of Peace. That's from the title of a book by James Adams on these psalms of justice, these psalms that many in our day would consider hate speech, and yet the Lord preserves in his word to be sung. In fact, we know that because the superscription tells us that it is uh, written to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Congregation, I want you to imagine it's uh, maybe 10 years ago that you've been appointed to the committee of the URC and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church to uh, select the psalms and hymns that would be in our current songbook. You've made your way through the first four psalms about uh, meditating on God's law and, and sleeping peacefully at night, trusting Him. But then you come to this one. What do we do with a song that speaks of God hating evildoers and destroying liars and then ask him to make them bear their guilt? Is this not evidence of an inferior Old Testament ethic, of a spirit of vengeance in David that falls far short of the spirit of Christ on the cross? Should we agree with those like Uh, One pastor from one of our federations who said these psalms clash noticeably with attitudes commended by Christ and his apostles, and therefore to include them in our songbook would be a mistake. What is a committee member to do? What are we to do? Should we sing this psalm? Or should we relegate it to the category of ancient hate speech that ought to be censored? That's, in many ways, the question that lies before us in Psalm 5. 
And I would argue that the the New Testament does not take the approach of that pastor I just quoted, but rather um, several of of the strongest imprecatory prayers, including this one, are quoted in the New Testament. Christ and his apostles pronounce similar uh, imprecations on enemies of the gospel, and the saints in Revelation 6 likewise pray, How long, O Lord, until you will judge and avenge our blood on those on earth? There is no conflict between the Spirit of Christ in the New Testament and the Spirit of Christ in this psalm. For it is His voice that we hear in both. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 10 tell us that Christ is the speaker of the psalms. Colossians 3 calls them the word of Christ. And when Peter in 1 Peter 1 um, speaks of those who prophesied about the sufferings and glories of Christ, he said it was the Spirit of Christ in them who spoke. And Christ is no theological schizophrenic, speaking one way at one time and otherwise at another. But this psalm is preserved for his church that he might lead us to sing and pray it too. Psalm 5 is a war psalm of the Prince of Peace and those who are engaged in the battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light are called to sing it. So let's seek to understand this psalm that we might sing and pray it with understanding. There's five sections of this psalm which are in your bulletin as somewhat longer headings in verses 1 to 3. The king identifies himself as the one who meditates on God's statutes and looks to him. Verses 4 to 6, the king admires the justice, righteousness, and holiness of God. In 7 and 8, he he admires also the the grace and steadfast love of God. Verses 9 and 10, he appeals to God's justice before then closing in 11 and 12, an invitation to all the king's subjects to sing for joy. And so this war psalm ends in peace. Look me first at the way the king identifies himself as the one who meditates on God's statutes. You may be wondering as you look at the psalm where it is that, that he does that. Well, when David says in verse 1, consider my groaning, that word is actually meditation. It's, it's the same Hebrew word from Psalm 1, verse 2, where that blessed man is meditating day and night on God's word. We've explained how that blessed man of Psalm 1 is the king of Psalm 2, of whom David is a type. And, and so it's as if he's saying, Lord, uh, consider how I'm doing that very thing in Psalm 1 that is supposed to result in my blessing. I'm delighting in your word. I'm seeking grace from your hand, and yet here I am in exile. I think it may be the case that Psalm 5 is written in the same context as Psalms 3 and 4. We, we don't know this for sure, but the way that, that Psalm 3, uh, written during David's flight from Absalom, speaks of him waking in the morning, and then Psalm 4 picks up that, that theme of lying down again at night, Uh, makes it seem that when David now in verse 3 of Psalm 5 says, in the morning you hear my voice, that this is the the continuation of that same flight the next morning. And so he's saying, Lord, give attention not only to my suffering, but to the way that I'm seeking him. 
and have mercy. For you are my king and my God, and both day and night I meditate on your words. So as I rise again this morning, would you hear my voice? It's interesting how often in the Psalms, David or, or the psalmist is said to seek God in the morning. What Spurgeon called the fittest time for communion with God. Over and over, the Psalms speak of of prayer as the day's first task. There's a pattern as we look at Psalm 3 and and then Psalm 4 and Psalm 5 of regular prayer at the day's start and at the day's end. One that perhaps we would not find in the lives of as many Christians today, but the Psalms commend to us as good. The Psalms we see are a school of prayer, not just in how to pray, but even when to pray. And so David prays at the start of the day, even though he is in the midst of, of danger. He, he is like Martin Luther, who's known to have said, I, I have so many things before me today that I cannot possibly get them done without spending my morning hours in prayer. What we often view as an inconvenient obstacle, many of of the saints before us have seen as their very source of life. So David prays and says, Lord, take note of, of my meditation before you. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I pray. He looks to his King to fight for him. God is the divine warrior who goes to battle on behalf of his people. And so David cries out and prays to him, offering a sacrifice, verse 3, and then watches. Do you notice how he does the very thing that Psalm 4 advises? And he offers a right sacrifice to the Lord, and he puts his trust in him. David, in the midst of the conflict that he's in, shows us here what it looks like to be angry and not sin. It looks like taking that righteous anger to the Lord for the ways that his kingdom is being mocked and asking him to bring justice, which is what we see David beginning to do in verses 4 to 6, where he admires God's justice, righteousness, and holiness. He doesn't jump right away into to placing his, his petition before God, but, but he first delights in God's attributes. That's the same thing he did in Psalm 3 or in Psalm 4, where he delights in what God has done for him in the past. Here again, before he gets to his petition in verse 8 and verse 10, he, he adores or admires God. He teaches us something of that acts method of prayer that begins with adoration, with the hallowing of God's name. And as we follow the psalmist in this this school of prayer, he he also teaches us something about the particular attributes that we're to adore. He names justice, righteousness, and holiness. He speaks of the holy wrath and hatred of God. A couple years back, there was an interesting article that showed, at least in the fall of that year, in the top 25 worship songs sung in the church, only one of them had even a passing reference to God's justice, compared to about a quarter of the Psalms. We need to praise God for the attributes that he tells us 
to praise him for. And in this psalm, as in many of them, it is the justice, righteousness, and holiness of God who does not delight in wickedness, hates evildoers, and destroys those who speak lies that we are instructed to praise him for. And doing this has a threefold outcome. First, it glorifies God in praising him for something that many today tend to neglect. Second, it it reminds the psalmist as he suffers at the hands of the wicked that because God does not delight in evil, he will not bless their efforts. But Absalom or Ahithophel or whoever it is that David has in mind, their plots are in vain. That's what David is reminding himself as as he prays and sings of how God does not delight in wickedness. And then third... If the Lord does not delight in wickedness, but is holy, righteous, and just, then even in praying this, David is reminding himself that he should not adopt the methods of his enemies to use against them. Those methods that that throughout the psalm include their words of boasting and deceit, their lies and flattery, their bloodthirsty vengeance. David is reminding himself by praying about God's justice and holiness that he must not adopt these methods, but instead must look to the one who will judge. Isn't that what we sang from Psalm 37 before the service? Do not fret, it leads only to evil. Hold your temper and stay far from wrath, for the, Lord, for the wicked will certainly perish while the godly inherit the earth. And that, that very last stanza that we sung in those closing words, it calls us to meekness. It calls us to humility. That's what David is reminding himself. He's reminding himself of Psalm 1, that God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so he must not become like them as they oppose him. But instead of sitting in the seat of scoffers, he should meditate on the law of the Lord. Remember that word for law in Psalm 1 is simply the word instruction. And so it includes not only his commands, but his promises and and the, the revelation of his character, which tells us that he is holy, righteous, and just. So look at me first at, at his holiness. It says God doesn't delight in wickedness and evil may not dwell with him. So this speaks of the fact that God is holy, that he is set apart from evil. Habakkuk 1, he is of purer eyes than to even see evil, and he cannot look at wrong. It cannot dwell in his presence. Therefore, these enemies who are seeking to destroy the king will not be able to stand in the day of judgment. That's what he said in Psalm 1. David is reassuring himself as as he reminds himself of God's holiness. And again, this reminder is also forming him as as he prays so that he will not entertain such evil, so that he himself will not delight in wickedness, so that he himself will not allow it to dwell with him, even as he seeks to oppose evil, that he will not allow evil to dwell in him as he does it. 
Spurgeon said, how foolish we are if we think that Christ can dwell in the parlor of our hearts while we entertain the devil in the cellar of our thoughts. David is reminding himself that he too must rid himself of such evil for it cannot dwell with God. And the second he goes on to speak of God's righteousness. That he is a God before whom the boastful cannot stand but is filled with righteous wrath, even hatred toward all evildoers. Those who, who make a practice of sinning as a way of life, the, the wicked of Psalm 1 or the enemies of the king and the kingdom in Psalm 2. God has a holy hatred for them and they are, Romans chapter 9, objects of his wrath. Paul says, destined for destruction, of which David speaks in verse 6, where he, he directs our attention now to God's justice, who will destroy those who speak lies and abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. He is a God who, Psalm 1-6, will make the way of the wicked to perish. Which again is a comfort to David as, as their lies and deceit and bloodthirsty vengeance all are directed toward him. But it also continues to shape him and to shape us as we pray it into those who likewise hate dishonesty. Because God is a, a speaking God who spoke the world into existence. Because his son in John chapter 1 is, is called the word. It, it does not please him when we who are made in his image as those who speak use our words to deceive. But we are failing to reflect his image as the one who is truth. And so the psalm says he hates lies and we should too. We should not be those who think, oh, it's, it's just a little lie. It's not that big a deal who think that others are overreacting when they are troubled by our lies or think that God does not care about our dishonesty? He does. Read verse 6 or, or read uh, Revelation 21.8 or 22.15 and let it move you to a holy hatred for dishonesty and a love for truth. That's what this psalm is, is meant to produce in us. It's meant to incite us to praise God for his often unappreciated attributes. It's meant to move us to trust as, as we see the wicked going around and plotting in vain. And it's meant to shape us more and more into God's own image as we too become a people of honesty and justice and holiness, a people who do not adopt the methods of the kingdom of darkness as we engage in battle, becoming scoffers, but instead who look to the Lord, verse 3, and watch with the meekness that Psalm 37 earlier commended to us, waiting for the one who will bring justice. Waiting for the one, Psalm 2.12, whose wrath will be quickly kindled. And David will return to that in, in verses 9 and 10. But first he speaks in verses 7 and 8 of, of another aspect of God's character. His steadfast love. I'm here the king admires God's grace and his steadfast covenant love. This again is that word hesed which speaks of God's covenant faithfulness. 
That even as he is the one who is opposed to those who do evil, he has set his heart on those whom he loves, to whom he's made covenant promises. And in the context of this psalm, who is the one to whom he has made a covenant promise? It is the I of verse 7. The one to whom God has made a promise. That promise in Psalm 2 that he will be a father to the king and he will be to him a son and he will give to him a kingdom. And David knows that because God is faithful to that gospel promise that he has made in the Davidic covenant, he will not cast the king out of his presence, but through the abundance of of his, his steadfast covenant love, he will enter into God's house and worship. He will enter into the very presence of God. While the wicked in the verses immediately before this will be banished from God's sight, God's covenant one, remember that's what the king is called back in Psalm 4, his covenant one will dwell with him and enjoy communion with him. Psalm 5, 4, evil may not dwell with God, but his covenant king may. Congregation of whom is this ultimately true? But Christ, the one in whom no evil dwells, no untrue words ever came from his lips, but he is the very opposite of bloodthirsty and deceitful. He is the one to whom God has made covenant promises, and through union with him by faith, David enjoys that same access into God's presence as Christ. This is the gospel. One pastor said, David here prophetically saw that his son, Jesus Christ, would save. And this encourages him and encourages us to come boldly into God's presence. Though he is a holy and just and righteous God, through the abundance of his steadfast love and faithfulness to his promises in the gospel, we who believe those promises... Walking not in the way of the wicked, but delighting in him, we have access into his presence. We have access into the presence of God because of his son. David is here delighting in the fact that God is not only a holy, just, and righteous God, but God is also a God of mercy and of grace. He is a God of steadfast, covenant love who keeps his promises. And notice the way that, that David places these two things beside each other, his, his justice, and then the very next verse, his love. And the way that David places these two things beside each other helps us to see that these are not competing or incompatible attributes, but his love and his justice are, in fact, two sides of the same coin. In David's case, he asked God to to lead him in righteousness and and to make a way for him because of his enemies. And in order for God to do that, that requires the judgment of those enemies. The point of of how verse 8 flows from verse 7 is that God um, judging those enemies of the kingdom, that will be an expression of his covenant love. Because he loves the king... He will judge his enemies in the same way that a father who loves his children will do whatever it takes to protect them. One songwriter put it this way, he said, if if the thief had come to plunder 
when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not their father see this? Would not his anger burn? And would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? God's wrath is motivated by his holy love and commitment to his covenant promise. And David helps us to see how these two things are complementary, not incompatible. God is both holy and just and also loving and gracious. And the Psalms help us to celebrate all of this. They help us to celebrate what the Belgic Confession calls the simplicity of God, which is simply the the theological way of saying that his essence and his attributes are one. He is not a combination of love plus justice plus holiness, as if he could remain God without any one of those, but all of them are essential to who he is. And even when he is exercising his holy wrath, he is still a God of love. Just think of the cross of Jesus Christ where we see that more clearly than any other place. Even when he is exercising his holy wrath, he is still a God of love. And David shows us that in verses 7 and 8. And so then he moves again seamlessly to appeal in verses 9 and 10 to God's justice, which once again will be an expression of his love. Let's look at me at verses 9 and 10 where the king Appeals to God's justice. This section is in some ways the heart of this psalm where, where he again names their evil in verse 9, that they're, um, they're, there is no truth in their mouth. He says their inmost self is destruction. They're seeking to destroy. He says that their throat is an open grave. Paul actually quotes this in Romans 3 verse 13. I think um, this sort of implies that if if the throat is the entryway into this open grave, then what lies inside is a dead corpse, a dead heart. These are enemies of God. These are, are the enemies of the king from Psalm 2. This is the seed of the serpent from Genesis chapter 3. Objects of wrath whose hearts are dead. And so David again asked God to, to bring judgment. He says, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Notice that's the same word from Psalm 1 verse 1. Speaking of the counsel of the wicked. Because they have rebelled against you, he says, echoing Psalm 2, verse 2, where they take counsel against the Lord and is anointed. And so David asked God to judge these Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 enemies of the king and make them bear their guilt, casting them out for their transgression. I want you to notice a couple things about this cry for justice. Um, One, that David asked God to make them bear their guilt. In other words, he is simply asking God to bring the just demands of the law. As it says in Leviticus, an eye for an eye. Which is why he says, let them fall by their own counsels. Let that which they have sought to do to me and to the subjects of of your kingdom, let that which they have sought to do to us be done to them. Um, so often in these, these psalms, what the psalmist will pray for is simply that their, uh, their evil counsels would, would rebound back on them and there would be justice. 
is what David is, is praying is fully in keeping with, with the principles of, of justice that are found in the law. What he's praying is fully in keeping with God's words. But then notice also um, why he asks God to judge them. This we see at the end of verse 10, where he says, for, use that word for, this is, this is the reason why he's asking this, for they have rebelled against you. Notice David's primary concern is not himself, but his primary concern is God and his kingdom. Their rebellion against him, David, as the king of Israel, the representative of God's kingdom on earth, their rebellion against him is ultimately rebellion against God. And for the, so for the sake of God's glory, he asks for justice. This is one of the ways that we can know we are being angry and not sinning, as it says in Psalm 4.4. Is our anger primarily about what has been done to us or to God? David teaches us that righteous, imprecatory prayer has as its concern the kingdom of God. Not personal vendettas, not me, myself, and I, but the hallowing of God's name and the coming of God's kingdom. Which is why we see also in verse 11, which we'll get to in a moment, that David has a concern for all who take refuge in God. His prayer is for the sake of the church, that they not be put to shame, but that they would ever sing for joy. Far from a prayer of self-absorbed vindictiveness or, or seeking to bring about justice himself, David is praying out of a concern for the glory of God and the good of his people, and then he waits for him to act. He is leaving it to God, his divine king and warrior who fights for his people. Would you pray a prayer like this? The concern not just for yourself, but for God and for his people. Yet recognizing that in order for the the prayer of verse 11 to be answered, for the people to enjoy peace and refuge, in order for that prayer to be answered, the justice of verse 10 must be executed. The Psalms teach us and and remind us over and over that we are in the midst of a conflict. That same battle that that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 paint a picture of for us and and the Psalms summon us from our beds to fight. Not to fight with swords, but to go into the throne room of God and plead Him to act on behalf of His people. One writer says to relinquish any one of the psalms on the excuse that its sentiments are too uncomfortable is a clear sign that we have given up the very battle that we are summoned from our beds to fight. The psalms are prayers for those engaged in an ongoing spiritual conflict. No one else need bother opening the book. Another theologian, J.V. Fasco, says um, some people shrink back from these words because they want to tame the lion of Judah. They want to turn him into a domestic house pet who loves us but does not have a hint of anger in him. 
Yet we can and must pray with David that God would justly condemn and judge the wicked, for it reminds us of God's holiness and his righteous hatred against the wicked. Would you pray Psalm 5? And would you see how God's judgment of the enemies of the king leads to what we see in verses 11 and 12? The king now invites his subjects to sing for joy. Again, the king prays not only for himself, but for his people. The king, he reminds us of of Christ, even on the night before his death, who's praying for his church, John 17. Likewise, David, in the midst of his suffering, is summoning his people to come under the wings of God's protection, who fights for them, and to ever sing for joy. Notice they are being invited to sing for joy because of God's justice. Because in defeating the enemies of the king and the enemies of the kingdom, the kingdom is at peace. And so they rejoice because God has blessed the righteous. That is the the singular righteous one, the king. Verse 12, that is in in the singular. He has blessed the righteous one. But now, all who find refuge in him are likewise blessed. That's the same thing that we saw back in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. That all who find refuge in the blessed man likewise are blessed. And, And so now, as God has covered the king with his favor as with a shield, all who belong to the king likewise enjoy this promise of of infinite length, unbounded breadth, and unutterable worth. That they are protected by God, blessed in him, and may sing for joy. Do you see the gospel in this passage? This is what the Davidic king invites his people into. Christopher Ash says, the, the Psalm 1 man who is the Psalm 2 king, great David's greater son, truly invites us under the protective covenant arms of his father so that we, like him, take refuge in God and are glad. In Christ, the assurance of this psalm is ours, a wonderful assurance that our prayer for protection from malicious wickedness will be answered. In Christ, we are able to pray this psalm. And as we pray it, three things will happen. One, as we said earlier, they they will form and shape us. Not just individually, but but even corporately. Notice again how in the superscription of this psalm, it's it's to the choir master because it's meant to be sung corporately. And as one 19th century pastor said, when it is, it purifies the spiritual atmosphere of the church. It is to the devitalized, sickly sentimentalism of our day what a raging thunderstorm is to the sultriness of a July afternoon. It has a purifying effect on those who sing it. It reminds us of the holiness of God. Another pastor says that singing these psalms serves as a, almost a form of church discipline where we ask the king of the church to uproot liars and predators from it. 
It may lead to corporate confession of injustice. It places before the people of God, both individually and corporately, God's utter holiness and hatred for sin. And yet, not only does it have an effect on the people who sing it, but it also has an effect by God's grace on the world around us. Because we believe that God uses and answers prayer, we believe that one of the most significant things we can do to intercede for our oppressed and persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, our, our brothers and sisters in India whose churches are being destroyed, or, or in the Congo where, where Christians were, were killed just this last week, one of the most significant things that we can do for them is to march into God's throne room week after week, day after day, and sing the Psalms. Where we call on God to move in such a way that he changes men and nations, squashes oppressors, and delivers his people. These songs are built for battle, and God uses them. And then one last thing that these songs do is they highlight for us God's grace in the gospel. James Johnston writes, we we will never grasp the greatness of God's love and mercy unless we first understand his hatred and wrath for sin and sinners. God's anger against unrepentant sinners is never fashionable, but it is the bedrock and foundation of the gospel. The good news is not good unless you understand that God is furious against each and every sinner. When you understand God's hatred for sin, the gospel explodes with glory and goodness and grace. When you understand that this is what sinners deserve and then you realize that that, that verse 7, I, through the abundance of his steadfast covenant love, am able to enter into his presence. The gospel explodes with glory and goodness and grace. And when you understand that that description in verse 9 of, of those whose throat is like an open grave, when you, when you understand that that verse is applied by Paul in Romans 3 to all of humanity, it makes you realize what you and I deserve too. So that as we pray these prayers, we would not pray them in self-righteous pride and vindictiveness, but with humility and with meekness recognizing, verse 7, that it's only through the abundance of God's steadfast love in Christ that we are able to enter into his house. We therefore desire all men to enter in with us, and we pray for that. But we recognize also that for those who continue in obstinate rebellion against God and his Christ, that he is glorified in the salvation of his people through the judgment of those enemies And it is right for us to pray that. My kingdom come, it will be done. Amen. Our Father in heaven, you are holy and righteous and just. We deserve your wrath, but you have showed us your grace. Lord, we pray that all men would know this grace too. But for those who continue in obstinate rebellion against the king, seeking to destroy his church and harm his people, we pray that you would bring justice. 
that the lion of the tribe of Judah would show forth his might and save his people. Lord, we do pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in distant lands who know very well the, the evil that this psalm describes it is, as it is aimed against them, the bloodthirstiness of those who hate the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that even through psalms like this, that you would um, help us to have a, a broader perspective on, on the needs of, of these people to whom we are united by, by the bond of the gospel, joined through the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that the lion of the tribe of Judah would show forth his might and save his people so that all who take refuge in you, your people in North Korea and Eritrea, Uganda, Sudan, the Congo and India, Nigeria, would take refuge in you and rejoice as you cover them with favor as with a shield. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.